welcome to Rising. Happy Monday. It's a big day for my Michigan Wolverines. I don't know if you know, it's the championship <laughs> game. Very excited. I broke out an old college t-shirt that I plan to wear tonight. So oh. I'm getting into the spirit. And who are you playing? Washington. Oh, oh. The national college championships. Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll vote for the Midwest team over the Washington team as a, as a Buckeye myself. We are honored to have your support. <laughs> uh, right. We can be united in this way, finally. In, in this way. <laughs> Viewers would not be surprised that we're, uh, we have a Michigan Buckeye rivalry as well as everything yeah, else. Yeah, sure, of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's get to our first story. Senior Pentagon leadership, uh, Biden administration officials, and members of Congress were unaware for days that Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin was hospitalized including briefly in the ICU. Now, Austin first entered the hospital a week ago on New Year's Day for yet undisclosed illness. He remains hospitalized as of this taping. Per anonymous administration officials, the Pentagon did not inform the White House National Security Council or top advisor Jake Sullivan of Austin's hospitalization until Thursday, a snafu that will likely cause, quote, heads to roll, one DOD official told Politico. Meanwhile, overseas, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is continuing his diplomacy tour of the Middle East as U.S. officials attempt to de-escalate growing tensions in the region. Per the Washington Post, an American intelligence assessment found that it would be difficult for Israel to succeed in a war against Hezbollah amid ongoing fighting in Gaza. Meanwhile, over the weekend, Israel killed two journalists after striking the vehicle they were traveling in, including the son of Wael Dadu, Al Jazeera's Gaza bureau chief. Since October 7th, Dadu says he lost his home, wife, and three of his children in Israeli bombings. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was confronted on the journalists' deaths. Let's watch. 110 journalists being targeted, targeted by the IDF, uh, including our uh, colleague, uh, son of our colleague, uh, Mahmoud Wa'al uh, al Hamza Wa'al al Is the United States condemned targeting journalists? I am deeply, deeply sorry for the almost unimaginable loss suffered by your colleague, Al-Madou. I am, uh, I'm a parent myself. I can't begin to imagine the horror that he's experienced, not, not once, but now, not twice. This is uh, an unimaginable tragedy, and that's also been the case for, as I said, far too many now, his response there has been characterized as a failure to condemn, offering condolences as a parent. It's a very different thing than looking at the structural issue here. Notably, I think I believe about 18 journalists uh, were killed in the course of the almost two-year war now in Ukraine, and they were given an honorary journalism award as a, award as a as a a way to recognize their sacrifice. Now, in just three months of a siege in Gaza, over 100 journalists have been killed. And this is, again, we're talking about a journalist being killed who is the son of the head of the Al Jazeera News Bureau, who has already suffered unfathomable tragedies. He has already lost uh, his wife, um, other children, and an infant grandson in these attacks. And increasingly, there are accusations that these members of the press are being targeted. 
Gazan um, journalists are now saying that they believe their blue flak jackets are a target, create, create, turn them into targets, as opposed to being an identifier that's supposed to make them more safe in the context of the fighting. And so, again, there's this question of whether or not, instead of just giving thoughts and prayers and condolences, whether there will be any consequences or at least an investigation into whether or not the accusations that Israel is, in fact, targeting journalists are true. Sure, and it's unimaginable that level of loss to lose that many members of your family. Um, I should just report that the IDF has said that also in the car was a terrorist uh, who was operating a drone, and that was the reason for the strike. So certainly further clarification is needed. Um, if you, I mean, if it, it was a legitimate target, if there was a terrorist also in the car, I suppose. But um, I know a lot of people probably won't take what the IDF has to say about it automatically, nor should they. So further investigation seems merited to me. I mean, at what point, even taking this most recent tragedy to the side, certainly it seems implausible that uh, I believe it's 104 journalists now that have been killed in Gaza, a relatively small geographic area, seeing more four times, um, you know, five, six times as many deaths of journalists than the war zone in Ukraine has seen in the last two years. At a certain point, um, it becomes implausible to believe that every one of those terrorists just—sorry, uh, every one of those journalists just happened to be sitting next to a terrorist when they were killed by IDF bombing. You know, uh, would you expect at this time there ha would have been some kind of investigation or stronger push pushback from the United States on Israel, given how much we purport to value and want to protect press freedoms, and given how many, the overwhelming um, bulk of the weapons that are being dropped on Gaza are actually being um, provided by the United States? Uh, of course, journalists should not be deliberately targeted. Um, I mean, I, I don't have the relevant information to determine which of these strikes were legitimate and which were not. Journalists just being targeted because they are—I mean, no one should be targeted unless they are literally a member of Hamas or are working with Hamas or are embedded with Hamas, and then they become a legitimate target. But I don't know if that was the case here. And it does merit further investigation. It looks like we're going to be talking with um, um, the author of a, of a piece about this for The Intercept later in the show today. So we should leave that one there. Um, what do you make of this Lloyd Austin um, news. It seems kind of like a very unforced error. Like, why wouldn't he just inform people what was going on? Um, it's very—his deputy thought he was on vacation, and that's why she was taking over. So it seems like it was very—it was hushed up for no reason and is just going to lead to people being in trouble, including possibly him. He might have to resign as a wake of this, and I don't understand um, why would you, you get the, yourself into the situation. I mean, one can only imagine that— the reason you would choose not to let people know that you were incommunicado, that you were going to be in major surgery, um, was that you wouldn't want to delegate authority to somebody else, because that's your natural implication, right? Just because you're sick and in the hospital doesn't mean you're fired from your job. It doesn't mean that it's, you're, you're subject to anything more than a temporary suspension of your duties. But what is going on where he wouldn't want to simply delegate authority temporarily to whoever is next in the chain of command? Is this, is this is some, can some inference be drawn about a lack of confidence in other people who are around? Is there something sensitive, particularly sensitive, about the geopolitical moment that 
made him not want to release the reins or allow other people to have insight into the kinds of actions he's overseeing right now, I do think it raises a lot of bizarre questions that, to your point, would not have come up if he had simply said, hey, I need to go on sick leave. Someone needs to take over for a week or two. Right. It sounds like it was um, unanticipated that it was a complication from surgery necessitating additional medical intervention, but that it was somewhat serious and he was going under the knife and he was going to be incapacitated and not able to process intelligence and react to things real time. I mean, we have, we have a uh, enormous federal bureaucracy, intelligence, defense infrastructure. Um, the idea that it all comes to a standstill because one person is under surgery doesn't make any sense. Like, you, you should be able to delegate to other people. I mean, what are we, what are we paying all these other people for if, if you can't, you know, hand over the reins in a moment of a, a personal medical uh, situation? So it's it's very weird, and likely he's going to be in a lot of trouble for it. But uh, we'll see if we uh, see one of the first um, uh, uh, departures from uh, the Biden cabinet, which, yeah. has, which has held remarkably um, solid all the way through. Well, it's worth noting Reuters um, White House correspondent Jeff Mason um, reported that POTUS is not so far considering firing uh, Defense Secretary Austin. That's as of uh, just about an hour ago. We'll keep you updated if anything changes. Stick around. I'll let you know what's on my radar next. What's on your radar, Brianna? Well, Robbie, revenge might be a dish best served cold, but schadenfreude was delivered piping hot over the weekend as one of the loudest voices that's been calling for the cancellation of former Harvard president uh, uh, Claudine Gay found himself in the hot seat himself after insisting for weeks that Gay's plagiarism was disqualifying and a source of shame for Harvard. Billionaire hedge fund manager Bill Ackman was forced to defend numerous plagiarism allegations leveled at none other than his own wife. That's right, the Harvard mega-donor's spouse, Neri Oxman, was exposed by Business Insider on Friday as not having merely plagiarized, but as having embarrassingly stolen full sentences and paragraphs from that not-so-well-regarded academic source known as Wikipedia. That's in addition to intellectual theft from other scholars and technical documents. Even neutral observers in the plagiarism wars, like author and cultural critic Thomas Chatterton Williams, observed observe that Oxman's plagiarism was, in fact, worse than what Gay did. She lifted more than half a dozen definitions straight from Wikipedia without any attribution at all, perhaps because she knew on some level that citing Wikipedia was, in fact, against school policy. Oxman, formerly a tenured professor at MIT, certainly should know better than to plagiarize. According to Business Insider, failing to include quotation marks is a, quote, violation of MIT's academic integrity handbook, both as it is currently written and as it was written at the time. Oxman, to her credit, admitted she was wrong and offered a mea culpa of sorts on Twitter, but her husband took a different approach. Although he insisted that Claudine Gay faced professional consequences, writing that the plagiarism issues Gay faced disqualified her from staying on faculty, Ackman had endless excuses for his wife's behavior. My favorite, quote, I'm sure that when she wrote her dissertation, she thought that there was nothing wrong with using Wikipedia as a dictionary. You can't make this stuff up. 
Now, as the Daily Beast noted, Ackman argued in a remarkable 5,139-word tweet that his wife's plagiarism was no big deal. Quote, some plagiarism, he said, is due to the laziness of the author. Laziness is not a great excuse for a member of the faculty, he said, but it does not seem like a crime to me. Incredibly, he also argued that Wikipedia might have quoted his wife rather than the other way around, and argued that because Wikipedia isn't copyrighted, it's okay to plagiarize it. Truly, truly wild stuff. Didn't stop there, though. Ackman argued that it was unfair, unfair to raise questions about a dissertation written 15 years ago in 2009, even though, of course, Gay's thesis was written in the 90s. He even seemed to blame Goyish public publishing deadlines for his inability to adequately respond to accusations against his wife, asking, how can one defend oneself when one learns about a 12-page plagiarism accusation at 5.40 p.m. on Friday night when one celebrates Shabbat? In an apparent effort to rehabilitate his wife's reputation, Ackman recalled her accomplishments, a number of patents, her work featured in retrospectives at the Met. He even encouraged his one million followers to watch her podcast with Lex Friedman. Of course, Connie Gates' endless accomplishments that her undergraduate thesis won the prize for best undergraduate thesis in economics at Stanford, that her graduate dissertation won Harvard's prize for the best dissertation in political science, that she became a tenured professor at Stanford at a young age and prior to serving as Harvard's president, had served as president of Harvard's Faculty of Arts and Science for five years, were not relevant, as Ackerman, Ackerman called for her head to roll. Now, finally, Ackman objected to Business Insider's reporting on the grounds that it's off-limits to go after someone's wife, which folks immediately pointed out was yet another double standard. As recently as just last month, Ackman attacked the wife of the chairman of the board at MIT, claiming that she runs a DEI business engaged in some type of fraudulent self-dealing. Now, this was not true, and Ackman was pressured to make a correction. In fact, the man's wife did not take any salary at all for her work. But the libelous tweet is still up with 35,000 likes. Are families really off limits to Ackman, or does Ackman feel like his family should get special treatment? You'll see a trend here. One rule for special elites like Ackman, different rules for the rest of us. Many of those who rushed to condemn Gay deployed the same defenses of Oxman that they'd scoffed at when Gay was in the hot seat. Look at this exchange. When a Twitter user pointed out that Oxman had clearly plagiarized, Megan McArdle replied, sure. Just not sure why they picked that target. In other words, why her? Suddenly, the reason a person is being scrutinized matters. Of course, no such grace was extended to Claudine Gay. Now, for weeks now, I and others have argued that because new AI technology can comb through lengthy papers for sloppy rephrasing and failures to provide citations with much more precision than a student could self-edit or a professor could review in the past, any pre-AI paper subjected to that kind of heightened scrutiny is likely to turn up some error. And that while substantive theft of ideas is still beyond the pale, we may have to reevaluate the standards to which we hold students in the before times. Many of you scoffed at that notion. But now that Ackman's wife is in the middle of a humiliating plagiarism scandal, Ackman apparently agrees. As he wrote on Twitter, the good news is that no paper 
No paper written by a faculty member after the events of this past week will be published without a careful AI review for plagiarism. But what do we do about papers written before today, which will inevitably fail an AI plagiarism test? Inevitably. The answer, I believe, he says, is that there are different kinds of plagiarism and it depends. Hmm. Now, to be clear, I agree with Ackman on this point. AI technology means that anyone who writes for a living can be subjected to a kind of academic stop and frisk. Remember, stop and frisk was ruled unconstitutional because selectively stopping people because of some bias, because of their race or their income or where they live is discriminatory. Justice, of course, isn't blind if it's only targeting certain groups because of some priors, and assuring that some people are more likely to be arrested for crimes, even if those crimes are equally common among different demographic groups, that's wrong. As I said repeatedly on this show, I would support a holistic academic review of all professors across all universities to assess how common the type of low-level plagiarism gay and oxmen are accused of really is. I have no interest in denying the truth that gay plagiarized, as did Ackman's wife, as did Alan Dershowitz, as did Melania Trump, as did Joe Biden. <laughs> what I do have a problem with is the weaponization of AI technology to selectively enforce standards as a pretext for a much bigger and much more important agenda. That is, using big money to shut down speech on college campuses. This is the important background that was excluded from so much of the Ackman-Gay conversation. This has always been about an unfolding genocide in Gaza, and one billionaire's feeling that he's entitled to force America's oldest and most prestigious university to ignore it. You see, Ackman has long held a grudge against Harvard generally and Claudine Gay specifically. As the New York Times reported last month, Ackman, by his own admission and according to others around him, resents that officials at his alma mater, to which he's donated tens of millions of dollars, and its president, Claudine Gay, have not heeded his advice on a variety of topics. Most recently, this includes how to respond to complaints of anti-Semitism from Zionists on campus. Ackman's personal grievances are out in the open. He told The Times, quote, it would have been smart for Gay to listen or to at least pick up the phone when he called. He went on to say he wants to be a, quote, positive force at the school, but we have to ask ourselves, should any individual be an outsized force of any kind at a university where free speech is so important, especially if it's just because they're rich, especially when their goal is to enforce the silencing of political dissent? Is it clear to you yet? Christopher Rufo, one of the architects of the anti-free speech pro-Zionist witch hunt of the last few months, characterized Ackman as an elite defector, saying, I don't think we would have seen anything nearing the level of backlash against these institutions had it not been for Bill Ackman. But Ackman is no elite defector. He is simply an elitist, plain and simple, who is advancing the agenda of Americans' bipartisan elite consensus. That is, side with Israel, no matter how many international humanitarian laws the country violates, no matter how many war crimes the country commits, no matter how many tens of thousands of innocents the country murders, and importantly, no matter the cost to the American public. 
This is a story about a multi-billionaire, a Harvard legacy student, who was chagrined to find that his money might be able to, say, buy his daughter's admission, but it couldn't buy off an institution, at least not at first. The New York Times reported that on November 4th, Ackman had the temerity to send a four-page letter to Gay outlining his concerns about anti-Semitism on campus, offering a detailed list of actions he wanted the university to take. Now, Gay reportedly passed his calls on to another administrator. And if Ackman's Twitter screeds are any indication of the length of that letter and what it was like, I frankly get why Gay's response was, too long, didn't read. Might it be that Gay's real crime in Ackman's eyes wasn't plagiarism, but failing to allow him to pay for the privilege of setting a university's agenda? Was he simply unused to being told no? Unlike Ackman, a legacy student born into money and privilege, Claudine Gay had to work for what she's achieved. Her parents were immigrants from one of the poorest countries in the world, Haiti. Her mom was a registered nurse. Her dad worked in the Army Corps of Engineers. Because of a nonprofit organization called A Better Chance, whose goal is to help talented young people of color who don't have the same opportunities Ackman was born into, she was able to go to Exeter and then on to an exceptional academic career. But Ackman wants you to believe that he and his plagiarizing and also Epstein-connected wife are the real victims here. The focus of this story should always have been the fact that young people specifically and Americans generally overwhelmingly do not support the wanton, barbaric violence that Israel has been unleashing on Gaza for the last three months. We are having this conversation because some students stood up to our government and to their own faculty members who frequently characterized their protest as anti-Semitism and instead demanded a ceasefire. In response, they were met by repression, doxing, and real violence. To be clear, I'm not talking about the violence that's been alleged by some Zionists on college campuses, someone feeling unsafe because a Palestinian student whose family may have been slaughtered said, from the river to the sea, Palestine must be free. I'm talking about three Palestinian American students who were shot with a gun, and one of them who was paralyzed from the neck waist down. While Republicans were platforming Zionist students in congressional hearings and bullying private universities into adopting repressive government speech codes, pro-Palestine students had job offers rescinded, while a truck with pictures of students on a screen on the side announced to the community that they were, quote, terrorists and anti-Semites. As Bill Ackman called for a list of all the students who'd signed a pro-Palestine letter to be barred from getting jobs, Powerful actors like the billionaire CEO of Sweetgreen tweeted in response to Ackman, I would like to know, so I never hire these people. Make no mistake, we're living in a new McCarthy era. A bipartisan phalanx of government actors and billionaire donors have decreed that criticism of Israel is anti-Semitism. In 2024, billionaires can force the resignation of university presidents at private institutions if they happen to disagree with their politics. They can ruin a student's chances at employment, and they can use the government as a tool for their anti-speech campaign. Now, Ackman is actually targeting the business insider journalist who broke the story about his wife's plagiarism. Remember how I constantly warn you about the implications of a few billionaires controlling the media? Well, 
Business Insider parent company Axel Springer announced it was going to take a couple of days to review the processes around these stories about Ackman's wife's plagiarism to ensure that our standards have been upheld. To be clear, not even Ackman's wife has denied the claims. But according to Max Tani at Simifor, Business Insider is feeling pressure because as a business industry mag, it needs to preserve its reputation among the billionaire class, making recent dust-ups with David Portnoy, Elon Musk, and now Ackman inconvenient, to say the least. Keep in mind that a couple of weeks ago, Ackman criticized Harvard for threatening to sue the New York Post over the gay plagiarism article. Now he's gotten Business Insider to investigate their own journalists for doing their jobs. How many principles does Ackman have to backtrack on before we commit the obvious? This was never about anything other than suppressing speech. Remember, when Gay resigned, her attackers announced the pogrom wasn't over. Elise Stefanik, who led the state-backed arm of the attack on private college administrators, tweeted, two down, one to go, referencing the resignation of both Harvard and Penn's president. Now, of course, the third MIT's president has no plagiarism allegations pending. This controversy was always, always about freedom of speech. I'd encourage you to speak up about it while you still have the right to do so. I think the um, attacks on Neri Oxman are politically bad faith, motivated by her political opponents, their political in nature, and thus should be ignored. Okay. I'm kidding. But like that's what we were told about Claudia Gay. Now, I don't care if she committed plagiarism. She should be held to the exact same standard. She's in an academic role, and she should be investigated. If found to violate the policies, then that's fine with me. What do I care? What you should care about is the fact that a billionaire can leverage his wealth to influence the speech codes at a private university and successfully oust a president according to his own personal politics. That is the, as, what is that question here. Again, oust, if we're talking about Claudine Gay, we're talking about someone ousted for plagiarism. I mean, I've gone over it a million times. You can watch all my radars. She was guilty of it. She was held accountable. I don't care if you go after other people or his wife or anyone. Like, that's fine. It, it was about the actual plagiarism aspect of it. I don't think the policies of Harvard or MIT or anywhere else should change to become less friendly to freedom of speech. In fact, it'd be hard for them to become any less freedom, uh, friendly to freedom of speech, given that they rank last and dead last on objective ra rankings of such things. But um, sure. Bobby, you saying I don't think that isn't doing very much work, because you don't control Harvard's policy. Bill Ackman does. And Bill Ackman does think that they should be more restrictive on uh, pro-Palestine students. He has called for them to be doxxed, for them not to get jobs after graduation. And he has literally used his power and influence to change who the president of the university it is. So whatever you think, I'm, I'm glad for whatever thoughts are in your head, but the reality is that we live in a country now where billionaires are empowered to decide what we learn in our universities and have the power to leverage an arm of the state to make employment decisions at a private institution. And you can say you don't care about that because you think the underlying 
plagiarism is real, but it's obvious that Gay did not have to resign because of that plagiarism, that the board did not have to turn on her and force her out, and that the, fa the reason that they did was not because of some abstract principle of academic integrity, as evidenced by the fact that there's no interest in doing an investigation into the academic integrity I mean, of no. anybody else that's working at the university. But it is about the fact that's that billionaire donors—it's not. This is well-reported, and I just spent a 20-minute radar explaining to you what happened. Billionaire donors threatened to withdraw their money from Harvard University. Ackman, who has given tens of millions— They don't have to give their money right. to the institution. We all know that, Robbie. And they aren't. Okay. They're withdrawing their How funds— How dare you not shower me with They're withdrawing their funds to influence the speech allowances at a private institution. You've said you don't care. Millions of Americans do, and that's what I'm putting on your radar no, today. No, I care that Harvard is a place and all these institutions— follow the policies that they state that purport to defend free speech and they should have they should be places where free speech is respected as their policies say they have failed to live up to that commitment for pro-palestinian students for pro-israeli students for students of all kinds for non-ideological reasons um, so we're i'm not disagreeing with you at all and i don't to want there to, to be a pernicious pro-israel students how has harvard fulfilled they uh, failed to live up to speech. it for all no, no. You how go, has harvard you just made an, a, an assertion that Harvard has failed to live up to its obligations to protect the speech of pro-Israel students. How has it done because that? Because they are ranked dead last for what, protecting free what speech example, for a That ranking is not particular to the issue of Israel-Palestine. So what evidence do you have? Because I have mountains of evidence that Harvard has not protected the speech not rights of pro-Palestine. I'll do a—I <laughs> don't know how many times I've had to do radars to go over the violations of speech policies at these universities. And I've condemned the violations of Palestinian um, speech uh, activists' rights in Florida and other places. So well, here we go. It's happening uh, in full force here at Harvard, and it can happen all across the country with much smaller donations, to be honest, because Harvard has a pretty big endowment. And someone like Ackman isn't even really a top donor at Harvard in the grand scheme of things. Imagine what billionaire and millionaire donors at smaller institutions with smaller endowments can do to coerce the speech policies and even— um, uh, hiring choices at an institution that you might care about or that you might have gone to or that you might be planning to send your children to. It's a very scary time. Did you not see how the specific plagiarism allegation against Oxman that is being made is the exact same—like, it comes from a place now of political reprisal. But, Robbie, I don't care—of course it does, but I don't care about Oxman. The issue is that Oxman being accused— I don't care that it comes from a, a place of political reprisal. But wait a minute. Let me finish this reprisal. sentence. Let me finish this sentence. The, the, the problem of the, what Oxman's accusation—the accusation against Oxman is exposing is that Bill Ackman did not believe a single thing he said as he was attacking Gay. Everything that he said about how serious the accusations were, about the gravity of the academic violation, about the, how disqualifying it was for her to be in an academic institution, how her reputation should be disrespected and ruined, none of that is per, pertains when it is, is his own wife. Suddenly, it's— oh, this isn't that big of a deal. This isn't the worst kind of plagiarism. It is a worse kind of plagiarism than what Gay engaged in. But when his wife does it, he says, well, this is a de minimis sort of plagiarism. This is just a failure to cite Wikipedia. Uh, this is not that big a deal. Her, The intellectual merits of this woman and all her other accomplishments right. still I, I think stands. that's not very persuasive at all. But I was told, again, that the motivations of the people bringing up 
plagiarism accusations should should discredit them because there's a political agenda underplay. I, and I'm saying that's the exact same thing. But no, I don't not, care. I'm not defending Bill Ackman or his wife. No, Seems like she is missing, guilty of plagiarism and she's not the exact same thing. It's, no, I'm not missing the point. You're missing the point. The point is that it was a serious accusation that the president of Harvard was accused of, and she is out for that reason. She's still teaching. At she's the not out for that way. reason, Robbie. And I've explained it, and everybody gets it. So I'm I'm, right. I'm done with this. The point I was trying to make that you cut off was that. No one is trying to get Miss um, uh, Doctor uh, Oxman fired. The point of exposing Doctor no one Oxman, is trying to get her. <laughs> she doesn't work at MIT, Robbie. There's nothing to fire her from. The point of exposing Doctor Oxman, Oxman, is to reveal her husband's hypocrisy. That's what we learned from hypocrisy this. revealed. Right. I, I'm not. And so, therefore, it wasn't about, as you keep saying and just said, the plagiarism. Obviously, it was it's clear, about the plagiarism. Obviously, it's clear from Ox, from from Ackman's own statement that he does not believe that plagiarism is disqualifying in the way that he averred it was when it was about Claudine Gay. Claudine Gay had her um, was reviewed by the the Harvard board, and they said they were not going to fire her. Ackman, that was in mid December. Ackman continued his pause. And then there were 16 more accusations of plagiarism that emerged afterward. And, and between Thursday and Friday. Another dozen accusations about Oxman were revealed, and we'll see how many more actually come to light as we continue to in interrogate her record. But the point is that the, the Harvard Academic Review said that she was still qualified to be president, and she still, in fact, is a teacher, going uh, to continue to be a professor at Harvard University, again revealing that none of this is about actual doubts about her ability to do scholarship or to teach classes. It's all about ousting her from the decision-making position she was in as head of the college and the fact that she did not reply to Ackman's five, four-page letter or answer his calls, which he felt entitled to have a one-on-one -on -one with her about because he had donated millions of dollars to a school. This is about elite capture, plain and simple. Well, it sounds like a separation of Harvard and Ackman would be fine. They don't get any of Ackman's money, and he has no say over the policies. I don't want him to have any say over the policies. I, I, but he does. So here we are. He does. That's what this entire segment and about this entire story is about. No, he does. The president. All right. We've talked about it enough. You can decide for yourself. Let us know. More rising right after this. Former President Trump has a message for President Biden. Release the hostages, Joe. Take a look. What they've done, and they ought to, you know what they ought to do? They ought to release the J6 hostages. They've suffered enough. They ought to release them. I call them hostages. Some people call them prisoners. I call them hostages. Release the J6 hostages, Joe. Release them, Joe. You can do it real easy, Joe. This guy, what he's done, what he's done to people. Trump's comments follow Biden bragging about the 840 total years in prison that January 6th defendants have been sentenced to serve under his DOJ. Since that day, more than 1,200 people have been charged for their assault on the Capitol. Nearly 900 of them have been convicted or pled guilty. Collectively, to date, they have been sentenced to more than 840 years in prison. What's Trump done? Instead of calling them criminals, he's called these, these insurrectionists patriots. Friend of the show, Glenn Greenwald, weighed in on Biden's campaign message, writing on X, it is bone chilling to watch a U.S. president brag about locking up huge numbers of peaceful protesters, and Biden is simultaneously asking you to believe that he is the only hope for saving democracy.
Meanwhile, Tucker Carlson hosted Republican Representative Clay Higgins on his show, where Higgins made the unsubstantiated claim that the intelligence community entrapped those present at the Capitol on January 6th. The involvement of, of certain actors, you could say deep state actors within the federal government, to set the stage for uh, what happened in, in J4, 5, and 6, and and to um, entrap thousands of Americans from across the country and lure them into this this set stage on J4, 5, and 6. The people that were involved in that is, 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 is quite a large web. So, yes, sir, we do have a great deal of evidence compiled and we're we're gradually, professionally uh, rolling that evidence out. Over on MSNBC, host Jonathan Capehart spoke to a Capitol Police officer who served that day in 2021. Let's watch. Known, I'm going to try to get through this. Um, thank you for what you did three years ago today. Um, please. Tell me your thoughts um, on this third anniversary. <clears throat> um, we are uh, still in the midst of the, the same fight that began uh, on January 6th, 2021. Um, and we have a lot at, at stake in this country. Uh, and I think that it deserves every American's attention. The family of Ashley Babbitt, who was shot and killed by Capitol Police, have filed a $30 million lawsuit against the federal government, claiming she was wrongfully killed. More footage from the moment she was shot reemerged on Twitter. Let's watch. So uh, looking at that video and reflecting on Tucker's guest referring to 1-6 protesters as entirely peaceful hostages does seem like a significant disconnect. Are they hostages of the government for peacefully breaking down um, a window, the other side of which were Congress members who they were articulating a desire to attack? Sure. I have a— Lots I could say about this. I take property destruction very seriously. I don't—you uh, you have the right to protest. You can't break down windows, fight with police, you know, rampage across other people's property. So I absolutely think it is justified to bring charges against the people who did that. It was certainly not an, an entirely uh, peaceful uh, protest day. Now, there were— Thousands of people there protesting peacefully who have not been charged and shouldn't be, who were there participating in First Amendment-protected activity. The people, the, the sliver of people compared to the overall toll, who uh, broke the windows of the Capitol, went in, um, have been arre were arrested, were prosecuted, and I think that's perfectly justified. Um, I think 
treating it like a terrorist attack, as some of the prosecutors and some of the judges have, to give enhanced charges to people who weren't even there and are, are you know, as if it was uh, a masterminded and organized um, assault on democracy that merits these 20-year prison sentences for some leaders of the Proud Boys. I do find that, um, that obscene. Um, in terms of uh, the kind of entrapment narrative that has become very popular among some right-wing commentators, the issue is—and and there, the guest of Tucker was—I I, I don't like when people say, we have all this evidence and we're going to unfurl it for you sometime in the future. We have all that evidence. It sounds a little bit like the alien stuff. Well, show yeah. it now. I want to see it now. Because, look, we do know that the FBI, that law enforcement, does engage in what people describe as entrapment um, all the time. This happens to you know, people, to, it happens to Muslim people online who get, you know, get contacted by an FBI agent and said, would you like to purchase a bunch of weapons? And then they get terrorism charges. Um, that it happened in the kidnapping, the alleged kidnapping of the Michigan governor, Gretchen Whitmer, when it revealed that this right-wing militia that was organizing it, um, a number of those people were actually being, were paid FBI informants being paid to carry out the plot. So this kind of thing does happen. And also on January 6th, we've been told by a former uh, chief of the Capitol Police, Stephen Sund, said that there were a number of, uh, of federal agents among the protesters, which, again, would not be unexpected, given that right-wing militia-type people often have informants and even agents among them. Now, what people have failed to show any evidence for is that the, the, the kind of rush on the Capitol was coordinated by—happened for, for non-spontaneous reasons. No evidence has been shown to suggest that. Here's and that's where it kind of breaks down Here's my concern. Tucker Carlson and others are clearly uh, in the midst of a reframing project to recharacterize what was a very embarrassing and ugly look for Republicans, the day of 1-6. It was resurfaced over the weekend, the obvious anniversary of January 6th, that many people who now have postured and are positioning themselves as um, defenders of the rights of the people who were unfairly prosecuted on 1-6. I believe it was Vivek Ramaswamy who referred to them as hostages as well in a tweet over the weekend. People resurfaced a weekend, uh, a tweet that he had made immediately after January 6, 2021, where he said it was a shameful day for the Republican Party. So this is a revisionist history project that's ongoing by a number of actors, where I would agree with you, Robbie, and have agreed with you in the past, that I am anti-incarceration. I think that some of the sentences were, were punitive. I think that terrorism charges ratcheting up sentences are a problem. But let's remember who we're talking about. One of the longer sentences was a man named Peter Schwartz. He was uh, sentenced to just over 14 years in prison. He was convicted of assault and civil disorder charges for throwing a chair at officers and spraying them with pepper spray. He had a prior criminal history of 38 felony convictions dating back to 1991. These are the kinds of people that are not being discussed as uh, specifically by Tucker Carlson, but are being lumped into this broader framing of heroes and hostages as though they should not be accountable for the kinds of crimes that, if we imagine, were done by, I don't know, a Black Lives Matter protester would be framed very, very differently by this cohort. Well, I know the conservative position is that a lot of Black Lives Matter—not, again, protesting is protected activity, but that 
rioting and looting that took place during those protests was not dealt with Assault sufficiently. Assault against police you, officers. You say someone with 38, a history of 38 felonies. Yeah, I don't know. Who let this person out? I would, I would have them still, I mean, under a, I think under a conservative thinking, they shouldn't be um, out there anyway. But, I mean, we're not really disagreeing uh, here. I, people should people should face the consequences for the actions they took on that day. It should not be, um, you know, rebranded in the imagination as something that that was, I mean, unless there's evidence. If there's more evidence that it was like, you know, an inside job or the deep state or whatever these people are claiming, let's actually see that evidence. Um, you know, we should not uncritically accept everything law enforcement, any law enforcement sources tell us. And in fact, all the law enforcement sources are disagreeing because they want to blame each other for what's happening. Some of the Capitol Police leaders say, oh, we wanted to call in the National Guard and we got thwarted by this agency and this agency saying, no, you had all the security you needed. And so it's, it's, it can be hard to make heads or tails of who's actually responsible, but that you know that doesn't mean we're not allowed to ask questions about the extent of the uh, the extent of what went on and and why it happened. But if people are going to make claims, they have to back it up with evidence. And what about Tucker Carlson's claims about the um, the, the broad claim that the people who were convicted of crimes on a one six, broadly speaking, should be characterized as hostages as opposed to convicted felons. You know, if Trump felt that way, he could have pardoned them all. He had time, ample time to do so, and many conservatives were calling on him to do just that. And instead, they languished in prison for a man who doesn't care about them. Now he says he does, because he knows he want, that's going to, that, you know, riles up the base and, and brings some more of that attention to Trump. But the reality is he didn't do anything for those people when he could have, and so people should be a little skeptical yeah, that he and, will in the and future. and I think Trump is right that there would be some a pretty weird optic battle happening for the party that says that they're the ones that respect law enforcement and law and order to pardon someone like Ro Robert Palmer, who was sentenced to five years for throwing wooden boards and a fire extinguisher at police officers that were guarding the Capitol, or Julian Cotter, who got more than six years after pepper spraying uh, a police officer in the face, among other other charges. Yeah, you'll never find me saying that um, someone who feuded with police in that way should be physically attacked, they should go, assaulted they police should, officers. They should be in jail. We should jail more people in, uh, involved in violent crime. It's actually a huge problem in this city. Uh, D.C., unlike every other major city right now, is suffering from a, a massive crime problem. Uh, the crime trends have reversed in all the other cities going back yeah. the way we expect them to And, live, and, and not so here. much of it happened. These violent criminals on 1-6 were a part of that right here in Washington, D.C. So that's that's the subject of this segment. Stick around. We'll have more for you coming up next. Well, we managed to talk about that without even shedding any tears. <laughs> Former President Trump will be getting his day in court. The Supreme Court announced that it would hear oral arguments on the merits of removing the former president from the ballot in Colorado and Maine. Now, initial arguments are set to begin on February 8th. The court's announcement comes on the heels of some pretty stunning polling data regarding Americans' views on Trump's ballot access. A new poll from CBS News and YouGov shows 81% of Democrats wants Trump, want Trump's name off the ballot, while just 44% and 10% of independents and Republicans, respectively, want the same. Majorities of independents and Republicans say they think Trump should remain on the ballot. Trump has not remained idle these past few days, making a series of Interesting comments on the campaign trail. During a recent stop in Iowa, Trump slammed his primary opponent, Nikki Haley's rambling comments on the causes of the Civil War. Let's watch. 
I don't want to make, because she also said, you know, they asked her about the Civil War. Why did it start? How did it start? She didn't use the word slavery, which was interesting. I don't know that it's, it's going to have an impact, but, you know, I'd say slavery is sort of the obvious answer. It's supposed to, it's supposed to about three paragraphs of <laughs> She just talked. Nobody knew what she was saying. I love woke Trump. <laughs> but to give uh, Haley credit, Trump's answer on what should have been done to avoid the Civil War wasn't much better than hers, arguing the war should have been merely negotiated. Here's more from Iowa. Abraham Lincoln, of course, if you negotiated it, you probably wouldn't even know who Abraham Lincoln was. Uh, he would have been president, but he would have been president. He would have been he wouldn't have been the Abraham Lincoln would have been different. But that would have been okay. It's, uh, it would have been a, a thing that, and I, I know it very well, I know the whole process that they went through and they just couldn't get along and that would have been something that could have been negotiated. Love when Trump claims he could just magically <laughs> negotiate things um, like uh, the Civil War never happening. In a statement that appealed to my personal deep love of the insane clown posse, Trump mused on the nature of magnets. How do they work? Let's watch. That didn't work. They had an almost billion dollar cost overrun on the magnetic elevators. Think of it, magnets. Now, all I know about magnets is this. Give me a glass of water. Let me drop it on the magnets. That's the end of the magnets. Why didn't they use John Deere? Why didn't they bring in the John Deere people? Do you like John Deere? I like John Deere. Brianna, <laughs> do magnets stop working if you drop them in water? I literally just Googled it. I don't think they do. Has he confused magnets with, like, your cell phone? I... I, I can't wrap my brain around it. I was like, a compass? No, But I'm before sorry. we embarrass ourselves, is that is that how they, does that, I don't Nothing's think. Nothing's coming. I Google no, water I magnets. And I think magnets still work in I, water. I, we should run this experiment. I've seen. Control room, bring us a magnet and, uh, and some water. We'll do it right now. I have never seen a magnet go out of commission from anything other than, you can like strike it in reverse of polarity. I remember doing that in school. Um, but I've never seen like, oh, it rains on the magnet. It doesn't yeah. work anymore. Um, okay. There was a lot in there. I got to say top line, and I hope this isn't why people do or do not choose to vote for him to be the president of the United States of America. It's a very big job. But boy, oh boy, does he provide some entertainment value, that Donald Trump. Top down. It's just enjoyable to hear him speak. Oh, man. Okay, so what do you make of these polls uh, showing that, frankly, I'm sort of surprised that 80% of Democrats, overwhelming majority of Democrats, think Trump shouldn't be on the ballot. But 44% of independents is still a pretty good chunk of independents, unsurprisingly, only 10% of Republicans. But the, the field of people that are in play for someone like Joe Biden, whoever ends up being the Democratic nominee— is that, dim, uh, that independent cohort in large part, and of course maintaining its own base, which overwhelmingly doesn't want Donald Trump on the ballot. So this has been framed, the effort to, to strip, um, to get him off the ballot in Maine and Colorado, as perhaps politically unwise, including by some insiders in the Democratic Party. Do these polls make you think any differently about that? Well, I don't, I mean, I don't know that it's politically, I, I just think it's, I think it's plain old unwise. I think it's bad for our democracy. I think it's not good. I think it's dicey given what the, or it's not clear cut given what the constitution says and it's going to have long lasting consequences like everyone is going to try to disqualify their political opponents um, from now on. But look, we but have a lot basis? of, what? And on what basis? That's not like this accusation has come out of the ether. There is a constitutional provision that says you cannot uh, do an insurrection, just like you have to be 35, just like you have to have been born in the United States. I mean, these are not 
not abstract gotchas that could get anyone other than those who could have plausibly not met the requirements. Now, I'm with you that it's not yeah. proven that Trump has actually done an insurrection, but it's hardly the case that just because that if that were proven, that everyone's head could suddenly be on the chopping block. Right. I don't think what Trump did meets the. De I think it was wrong, and it might be criminal. I don't think it meets the definition of insurrection, but that's what we're gonna we're gonna adjudicate. I think it is really wild to be taking him off the ballot even prior to a finding that what he did was illegal, let alone an insurrection. Yeah. And uh, and actually, I was a little surprised to see so many, even Democrats, uh, again for whom their elected leaders at least claim democracy itself being at stake. Um, a, a, the vast majority of even them saying that he shouldn't appear on the ballot at all. Of course, many elected Democrats saying the same thing. Not all of them, by the way. Gavin Newsom, one Democrat, for instance, has said he thinks this is the wrong path to go down. I was interested to hear from our mayor here in D.C., Muriel Bowser, who was on MSNBC over the weekend. Let's play that clip, actually. Do you think he should be barred from any ballots, given his actions on January 6th? Well, I support every state taking very aggressive action um, to, to keep him off the ballot. Uh, he is undergoing, uh, you know, court action across America. Do you think he should be barred? No, this is our mayor. Um, we just finished um, our highest year, uh, highest murder rate year in like 20 years in the nation's capital. So I would love if Mario Bowser would prioritize some of those issues rather than supporting keeping Trump off the ballot everywhere. But um, to your point about independent voters, um, uh, still a majority of them say he should be on the ballot, right? And, you know, there's some independent voters who say they're independent voters but are reliable voters for Republicans and they're reliable voters for Democrats. The, the actual gettable slice is a smaller chunk. I wonder what they think about it. I don't know, Robbie. You have made, I think, a really compelling argument that election denialism hurt Republicans in the midterm, and that an association with that brand of Trumpy uh, election denialism just is a no-go for the average American. And I do wonder if this question of whether or not he should be pulled from the ballot because he arguably tried to advance an insurrection on January 6th and the weeks preceding January 6th, is reminding people of that sort of ugliness that made election denialist candidates so unattractive to them in the midterm. Is this more evidence that there's a broader kind of corona of negativity um, and illegality and fraud that voters are really gun-shy about and would prefer to avoid in a presidential nominee, even if they are an independent voter that is open to a Republican candidate? You know, the 10 percent of Republicans who said that they would like to keep Trump off the ballot, I wonder, you know, privately, that's Mitch McConnell's view, that mm -hmm. so many elected mm -hmm. leaders of the Republican Party, because if he could imagine—they deny it to your—you know, publicly, they would say, Absolutely not. We're 100 percent behind Trump. This is unfair, blah, blah, blah. But the Republican Party, its leadership, wants nothing more than to wave a magic wand and have Trump disappear spectacularly without them having to do anything about it. While they can they can cry about it and say it's sad, and it's a tragedy, it's unfair, the cry the crocodile tears for Trump, that is their greatest desire. And this this would be waving that magic wand. Yeah. So it's it, because and because they, they see the polling data and they know that. I mean, Trump very well might beat Joe Biden. Um, right now, we look, and it seems like he, he would. But Nikki Haley, who's a, a kind of, who's been coming along and doing pretty well in, in a lot of uh, polls, actually, versus Trump in these upcoming um, primary votes we're going to have, 
looks even more formidable against Joe Biden. And they and Mitch McConnell type people just want to win. Yeah, but when I look at that poll, I see how difficult it's going to be, how much of an uphill battle it is for any Trump challenger. Because you have to imagine that if you are a Republican who wants anybody other than Donald Trump, you'd be inclined to say that you also think he should be pulled from the ballot. Now, I know there's some principled people who say, even if I don't like Donald Trump, I think that this is bad for democracy. Right, but ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, there are very few people like that. I mean, I, I only, I don't actually feel that way. I feel like I end up agreeing with you at the end because they have not proven the insurrection. I do think if they, if he had a complete a court case that had already come to resolution and he was convicted and found guilty, then it would be appropriate. But at the end of the day, the fact that only 10% of Republicans, even out of the sense of, a sense of self-interest for their own candidate, want Donald Trump to be pulled from the ballot suggests to me that there's only really 10% of Republicans who are even sort of considering voting for anybody other than Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, Trump. the vast majority of Republicans are going to vote for the Republican candidate, no matter who it is. They really like Trump. Trump has a very vocal, you know, like 40% of the whole where, who are just die hard for Trump. But again, if Trump, I mean, if Trump died tomorrow, they would all get behind Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis. I mean, they, Republicans want a Republican to be Not president the day and Democrats want to be. <laughs> We'd have to see. Maybe. I don't mm. know. It would be—some uh, of his supporters, I think, would go to—I uh, think Trump supporters would go to Vivek to, to some degree. But it would, be, uh, it would be an interesting contest. But that's only going to happen, again, if Trump is—I mean, frankly, taking him off the ballot doesn't—he would still be—he would be involved. He would—I mean, I, I can't even imagine what would happen. Yeah. If he was—as the Supreme Court decided he was actually gone, we might see rioting in this country like— January 6th was only, was, was going to make that seem like nothing. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, look, let's do an informal <laughs> poll in the comments here. Let us know if you are a likely Trump voter. Where would you go if he were no longer able to be on the ballot? Stick around. We have more rising for you right after this. Hear that sound? That's former President Barack Obama sounding the alarm to get Biden reelected. Obama is one of a cadre of Democrats who are getting very nervous surrounding the 2024 elections and are urging those in the president's inner circle to buttress his campaign. Now, as The Washington Post reports, during a private lunch with the president, Obama grew animated in discussing the 2024 election and former President Donald Trump's potential return to power and has suggested to Biden's advisors that the campaign needs more top-level decision-makers at its headquarters in Wilmington, or it must empower the people already in place. If polling data is to be believed, Obama is very right to be worried. Recent polling indicates that Trump has a substantial lead over Biden, with independence at 55 percent versus Biden's 45 percent, and his grip over the GOP is stronger than Biden's over the Democrats. 97 percent of Republicans back Trump, while just 84 percent of Democrats back Biden. Bad news gets worse when looking at polling data for groups where Democrats usually dominate Republicans. Trump leads Biden 57 to 43 with Hispanics. And among young voters aged 18 to 29, Trump leads 58 to 42, a bad sign for a president seeking re-election. Biden's poor polling numbers come on the heels of a catastrophic conference call to plan strategy between the White House and Democratic cheerleaders last week. Axios reports that pundits walked away from the call shaken that Biden world is not adequately taking the possibility of a Trump victory seriously. 
Democrats were not particularly encouraged by Biden's visit to Valley Forge last week, where Biden released a video tying modern politics to the events of the revolution. Let's watch. We're in Valley Forge. I'm standing in a home that George Washington rented at the time. He was here for about six months. Think about this. Ordinary men and women decided they weren't going to bow down to kings anymore. And so what did they do? They came out and they took on the strongest military in the world. Ordinary people, ordinary people, demanding liberty, demanding freedom, demanding to be able to run their own lives. That's who we are. That's who an American is, and we're still that American today. We're still that American today. We bow to no one. Hmm. Robbie, who is that for? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's supposed to be for me, for libertarians, I guess, but it, we're not going to believe it coming out of the mouths of Joe Biden, the man who famously required millions of people to get um, the vaccine and all sorts of other COVID measures and all sorts of other, I mean, he's not a, he's not the candidate of people who value individual liberty, in my view. I mean, frankly, there is no candidate for us, sadly. Um, I was refreshing myself, uh, refreshing my memory, uh, refreshing myself, refreshing my memory of what the polls looked like uh, back in 2020 mm -hmm. when, uh, for Trump versus Biden. And it is, it's true that for almost the entire 2020 race, Biden was ahead of Trump. Um, the final result was, frankly, a little closer than the polls suggested. Biden led Trump pretty substantially on national polls. And then in the swing states, he, he maintained a good lead the whole way through. It always looked like that. Um, that was one of the reasons the kind of, oh, the election was stolen from me kind of narrative the, the Trump people came up with actually didn't, didn't, you didn't need something um, out of the ordinary to explain what happened because the polls were were pretty accurate. In, in fact, the, the the end result was more favorable to Trump than the polls would have suggested. So that's a long way of saying that if you look at these polls now, you should be very very worried. Trump yeah. is way ahead, way ahead. And yeah. if he, if he does if he overperforms the polls to the degree he did last night, it's going to be a landslide in his favor. Yeah, and I know people are looking at the independent numbers, and those are concerning. Strength with independence is one of the most strong predictors of your ultimate outcome, and it was one of Sorry to be a grudge bearer here, but I'm having all these flashbacks of 2020. It was one of the reasons that people were making an electability argument for Bernie Sanders, who did best with that group. But I think the real canary in the coal mine here is how extraordinarily poorly Biden is doing with young voters. I mean, young voters for decades, perhaps since time immemorial, have been so solidly aligned with the Democratic Party. And to not just to lose support among young voters, but to have Donald Trump, of all people, outstrip your support with young voters, I think that's really strong evidence of young voters not necessarily saying, I'm going to go and vote for Donald Trump, but saying that because of their values, they find voting for, for uh, Joe Biden unconscionable, that there's a line in the sand that has been you know, it was it was sketched in by the betrayals over student debt cancellation. It was sketched in by, um, you know, Gen Z and millennials coming up as the first generation to not perform as well economically as their parents, not being able to afford homes, having to deal with these incredible interest rates and the, and the like. But it was gouged indelibly in the ground um, after October 7th. And Joe Biden it's unconditional support of the siege in Gaza, which has now killed over 22,000 people. And while Republicans and Democrats alike can see the solution to that, 
problem as uh, ban TikTok. Let's have more authoritarianism. Let's shut down speech because kids are seeing too many horrible images of bodies torn asunder and kids, uh, babies having their limbs amputated. That's not the problem. The fundamental problem is that overwhelming majorities of Americans, over 66% of Americans, support at the bare minimum just a ceasefire. And Joe Biden and his administration apparently think that they can ignore the popular will and push themselves over the finish line by, I don't know, pure will, guilt, executive fiat, uh, a lack of democracy, stripping other primary candidates from the ballot. Who knows what's on their mind, but it's a really, really tough gamble they're making. Yeah. Biden certainly does not look like the most electable candidate, to go back to the electability argument. Yeah. Um, he looks uh, uniquely vulnerable. In, in fact, some polls, it started to reverse. We, we always used to say, well, say what you will about Biden, but he remains more popular than many other Democrats, including then his vice president, Kamala Harris. Even that got flipped yeah. recently. Kamala Harris, a, a famously <laughs> not particularly compelling, well, attractive, de desirable, you're saying politically, not my, of yeah, course, right, not right. physically. Or, or not, not someone who has this deep reservoir of, of support, this right. base, not, not someone tapped into what the people yeah. are looking for, even yeah. she doing better than uh, than uh, than Biden. So the fact remains, why aren't they even having a sort of contest where you could audition other candidates and see if they catch fire, see if see if someone um, uh, does well in a debate against Biden yes. or or overperforms in a in a primary vote, something like that. Let let's again, democracy's at stake, but we can't have actual democracy to decide whether Joe Biden should be the leader of the Democratic Party, the party with yes. democracy in its name. And I've said this before, but I really want to underscore this point. Primaries and debates in particular are not just opportunities for challengers to make themselves known to the general public. They're opportunities for incumbents to remind the party as a whole what it has accomplished and what its prospective agenda is. Without having a Democratic primary, while the Republicans, despite Trump's non-participation, are having a Republican primary, you're getting news cycle after news cycle of Republicans putting forth their vision for the country. Now, as unappetizing as it might be to me, there is a vision that's being articulated. Whereas Joe Biden and the Democrats, what is their agenda? How do they think America for the next mm -hmm. four years should differ from America in, in, the last, in the last four? Joe Biden's putting out videos of him going to visit a place that George Washington stayed for six months, and this is supposed to be some grand analogy for democracy. People want to know if they can afford their mortgages. People want to know if they can afford to buy a car. People want to know if they can afford health care. People want to know if they can afford to send their kid to college or to vocational school or get an education that can set themselves up in a tough work environment for the rest of their life. That's, those are the kind of questions that could conceivably be answered if Biden were meaningfully challenged by someone on a debate stage, or even if the mainstream media would allow a debate between Dean Phillips, Marion Williamson, Cenk Uger, and anybody else who might want to throw their hat into the ring. But Democrats are really shooting themselves in the foot, believing that not Trump mm -hmm. is really going to carry uh, Joe Biden across the finish well, line. Well, and the Biden team is clearly very upset. They're combative about this, that the press does not tout Biden's accomplishments enough, that we're, that, you know, members of the media, I guess, like us, aren't out there trying to tell everyone everything's so great. And, and That's his job. What Biden did for me. <laughs> right, exactly. But they're unwilling 
to make that case yes. in the format yes. that one would traditionally do so during a campaign season yes. on the campaign trail, e including within the Democratic primary. Um, you know, he thinks, I mean, that we've heard from their attitude. We've heard from people like Simone Sanders who yes. say, well, he's the incumbent, so he's entitled to it. So he'll, you know, he'll uh, dust himself off and get onto that debate stage when uh, when Donald Trump or whoever it is is uh, is christened, and they'll just move straight into the general election. But the poll numbers are not suggesting that's a great strategy. We're going to have in all likelihood, a general election debate with two candidates who we literally have never heard from yeah. on a debate stage for the last year. Yeah. Incredible stuff. We're just going to be hearing um, comments about how magnets work <laughs> from Trump in the meantime, <laughs> which I'm here for. That's great. All right. We're rising for you right after this. Stick around. We've got some bombshell reporting from The Intercept to share with you today. Per reporting from Daniel Boguslaw, CNN journalists reporting on Israel and Palestine, whether stationed in the Middle East or the United States or elsewhere worldwide, are required to submit their work for review by CNN's bureau in Jerusalem before publication, following a longstanding policy. While CNN asserts that the policy aims to ensure accuracy in reporting on the contentious subject, it implies that a significant portion of the network's recent coverage of the Gaza conflict and its global repercussions has been influenced by journalists operating within the constraints of the country's military censor. As highlighted in a recent report by The Intercept, the military censor has recently imposed restrictions on eight subjects, including security, cabinet meetings, information related to hostages, and also reporting on weapons seized by fighters in Gaza. Foreign reporters seeking a press pass in Israel are required to sign a document acknowledging their commitment to comply with the directives of the censor. In response to this report, a CNN spokesperson told The Intercept in an email, quote, the policy of running stories about Israel or the Palestinians past the Jerusalem Bureau has been in place for years. It is simply down to the fact that there are many unique and complex local nuances that warrant extra scrutiny to make sure our reporting is as precise and accurate as possible. Joining us now to discuss his reporting is investigative reporter at The Intercept, Daniel Boguslaw. Welcome to Rising. Hi. Thanks for having me. Now, Daniel, I want you to address the uh, explanation offered by CNN that these issues in this region are particularly sensitive. I can't imagine that there's many regions all across the world that is de are dealing with sensitive issues that could use, let's say, a review from a local perspective. But is this a relatively unique choice that's spe special to Israel-Palestine, or do we regularly see news about various subjects being rooted through local bureaus in very various parts of the world? Sure. Well, I think at various bureaus, you know, sometimes reports will be run, um, you know, through a, a regional bureau to add reporting or, you know, consult with a specialist to check for accuracy. What's unique about this is the policy of running every single story concerning Israel, concerning Palestine through the Jerusalem Bureau, uh, which, as I reported, is under the auspices of the Israeli military censor. Now, it's, it's widely known that the Israeli military censor has existed for decades, that they issue directives and are often in contact with bureaus and newsrooms, both domestic news agencies in addition to uh, foreign news agencies. But uh, a policy that requires international reporters to run basic coverage uh, by them is certainly something that's unique and, and something that hasn't been reported as existing at other major news organizations. 
Could you describe more fully for us the process in Israel, the military censorship, and what that looks like? And, and obviously, it's not just CNN, then, that is um, subjected to that level of scrutiny, but you know, all reporters who want to do business in the region. Sure. Well, the censor outlines uh, coverage areas which are off limits. Uh, before the CNN report, we reported on the addition, as you mentioned, of several subjects that are off limits, um, matters relating to hostages being held in Gaza's health, um, reports about weapon systems captured by Hamas fighters. Um, so th there are these hard and fast uh, rules that are laid out to um, protect against security infiltration in Israel. Uh, there are also, at times, reports submitted by news organizations directly to the censor for review. And in those cases, um, the censor can actually redact portions of uh, news reports. They can, they can literally censor them to remove um, lines of text. Um, but really, through reporting on this subject, it's become clear that, that the way the censor functions the majority of the time is through a sort of soft power which influences self self-censorship, meaning that reporters, again, whether they're domestic reporters or international reporters, um, begin to understand the limits of what they can do. And instead of receiving an angry phone call from the censor, uh, which is often how they, they communicate with, with bureaus, uh, reporters just know what the limits are and they are not going to overextend themselves. They're not going to jeopardize their careers um, with their managers, with their bosses, um, or through legal action directly from the censor. Yeah, this is incredible. You say you spoke to a CNN staff member who spoke to The Intercept on the condition of anonymity, who said, quote, every single Israel-Palestine-related line for reporting must seek approval from the Jerusalem, Jerusalem Bureau or when the Bureau is not staffed from a select few handpicked by the Bureau and senior management, from which lines are most often edited with a very specific nuance. You go on to write about some of the uh, policies that CNN has promulgated to its staff members um, uh, that, uh, that are, have to do with how they characterize the war. Can you speak to some of those and about whether or not you think those guidelines uh, cross the line over uh, from editorial guidelines or, or kind of um, more structural guidelines into actually setting an editorial and opinion direction for the outlet? Well, I think I think one of the biggest concerns expressed to me from inside CNN was about uh, timeline, you know, reporting facts as they're coming out um, in real time. And that's sort of CNN's bread and butter. And what this person expressed was that this process significantly slows down um, their ability to report the news as it happens. And there's a real discrepancy between uh, news that comes out of the IDF um, it, it, it evolves much faster from the official line versus uh, any review of uh, footage coming out direct out of Gaza, um, not reported by the IDF uh, or statements um, relating to the war made by uh, Hamas officials. So what, what this person really expressed is that um, even more so than, than any uh, effect, direct editorial effect, there's a broader um, effect on, on news output uh, where this process just significantly slows down uh, any report and it creates an imbalance in the streams of information um, flowing into, into CNN and out to viewers. 
So you're saying that because uh, the IDF provides its own version of events directly to CNN, and those can be reported out quickly, as opposed to the more informal reporting channels that are coming out of Gaza with uh, journalists who are uh, local journalists who have been under siege, over 100 of them killed so far, that that side of the reporting is delayed as compared to the reporting that's coming directly from IDF sources? That's correct. And, and it, also, to be clear, in this report, we reported for the first time that at, at the onset of the war, um, about 10 days after, after October 7th, uh, CNN actually hired a former IDF soldier out of the spokesperson's unit um, to basically effectively what seems to, to be serving as a conduit uh, between the IDF and CNN um, for things like translation issues, for uh, speed of contact. So again, there you see this real discrepancy where you basically have a direct line um, flowing in from the literal IDF spokesperson into CNN um, and a system set up to speed that process. Uh, while there just wasn't a similar effort to uh, create a streamlined review process for um, other streams of news, which sometimes uh, are, are breaking events um, faster than the IDF in certain cases. Right. Uh, CNN reporters have been uh, at times uh, embedded with um, the IDF. I can recall that one CNN reporting where uh, a reporter was has been, you know, walking through um, the the hospital that got taken, and, and the IDF is showing the things um, that they found there. Um, d does this? influence the kind of, you know, access they're able to get or the coverage they're, they're able to get? And is, is that a reason you, you think they might be good with this arrangement because it pleases the Israeli government and then they're getting more access because of it? Well, certainly um, multiple outlets have agreed to submit their footage to the IDF for review before publishing. And again, you know, this, this is under the auspice of, uh, you know, protecting, um, you know, the, the operational stability of the IDF. Uh, forces operating in Gaza. And um, I think that these are uh, difficult choices that, that newsrooms have to make um, all over the world. You know, you, you can conceive of uh, a, a bureau operating in, in a country like China or Russia um, that has to uh, weigh the challenges of reporting critically on, on an authoritarian government um, uh, with protecting their staff and, and being able to maintain coverage. Um, I, I think what's so unique about this is is really what, what these internal directives and, and documentation seem to show is that CNN went above and beyond um, what other news organizations' protocols are uh, for, for trying to figure out that balance. Um, and in fact, sort of hyper-insulated themselves in one sense, creating uh, internal sensor on top of the official IDF military sensor um, to ensure that you know, there were no incidents like what occurred at the New York Times, where a headline ran um, and there, there was an entire internal review process trying to make sure that there was safeguarding internally to, you know, attribute news sources to the uh, Palestinian Health Authority versus the IDF and to clarify where information was coming. You know, I think that was a big shakeup moment um, for major news organizations where the the firestorm was unlike anything they had they had experienced in a long time um and i think uh, there hasn't been a similar response with cnn and, and maybe part of that is because these protocols 
have been in place for so long and, and you know, have ensured that a, a dust up like that uh, hasn't ever occurred for, the, for what seems to be decades that this policy has been in place. Yeah, I'm reminded uh, as you're talking about when CNN reporter Sarah Snyder was forced to issue an apology for saying on air uh, that Israel had um, confirmed that the now infamous 40 beheaded baby story, which of course did not happen, was in fact true. She confirmed she got a report on air. And I think that is perhaps an indication of how a close relationship and an uninterrogated relationship between a news organization and people within the Israeli government can lead to exactly that kind of misinformation, which, of course, was spread so far that even Joe Biden repeated that that was true multiple times. I also just want to speak to this other aspect that you wrote about. I mean, when we're talking about the uh, new standards and practices that were promulgated on CNN, the, the pattern that I'm getting from your reporting here is that there is a push to make sure that all evidence, all news that is being reported locally or from uh, uh, Hamas-affiliated sources are, are characterized exactly in that way to, question, to frame all of the death tolls and things like that as these are Hamas numbers. I think the implication of that is pretty obvious, whereas the same is not true of identifying uh, or the implications of identifying numbers as coming from the Israeli government, even if there has been a pattern of misinformation, whether it's about 40 beheaded babies or whether or not they were responsible for killing uh, Shreena Abdul-Akla, and on and on and on. Is that right, that people were told um, you know, you, you write, if a senior Hamas, uh, they were told if a senior Hamas official makes a claim or a threat that is editorially relevant, such as changing their messaging or trying to write events, we can use it only if it's accompanied by greater uh, context. Hamas representatives are engaging in inflammatory rhetoric and propaganda. Most of it has been said many times before and is not newsworthy. What, what, what part That's of that right. did, did you find most striking? Well, uh, honestly, I mean, I find them. The, the, the greatest irony uh, pairing that, that directive um, next to the history of, of the IDF spokesperson's unit out of which a, a reporter was hired at the onset of the war. I mean, this is a unit that was uh, forced to apologize for conducting psycho psychological operations, uh, psyops against Israeli citizens. So, you know, the notion that they, they uh, will you know issue a directive like this alongside um, the hiring of someone out of a, uh, a state body that that has been forced to apologize uh, to its own citizens for bending the news and and, and um, you know creating uh, fake social social media accounts um, suggests that there should be a, 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 if not equivalent at least greater couching of uh, uh, information coming out of the IDF and informing readers um, about about the history of uh, psychological operations uh, from that unit um, and, and the fact that uh, the IDF's own numbers are, are, are not always credible as well. Daniel Bogoslaw, thank you so much for joining us today on Rising. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
Senator Anthony Fauci is testifying on Capitol Hill as we speak for the first time since retiring from public service. Fauci is appearing in front of the select subcommittee on the coronavirus pandemic, in which the subcommittee has prepared more than 200 pages of questions and approximately 100 exhibits. He will be participating in two seven-hour closed-door sessions happening today and tomorrow. Now, as U.S. Right to Know's Emily Kopp pointed out on X, quote, Fauci faces questions today. Over the weekend, we revealed a meeting between Fauci and EcoHealth Alliance President Peter Daszak in 2017 that Fauci forgot about during his 2022 sworn deposition. We also revealed that the Wuhan Institute of Virology's bat lady, Shi Zheng Li, apparently visited Fauci's NIAD in 2017, and she passed a security screening to do so, apparently, despite the fact that the PLA's work with the Wuhan Institute of Virology dates back to at least 2017. We will, of course, be monitoring all of the testimony and will report back on it here. Meanwhile, Tucker Carlson interviewed Dr. Brett Weinstein on what comes next after the COVID pandemic, specifically on what the World Health Organization has in mind. Let's watch. Oh, significant. If you own NBC News, it's enough. You would think, right? You know, it's it's a, it's failing to update from the buying by the barrel uh, totally aphorism. Um, so what happened was it turned out that a number of us were willing to make mistakes and correct them in real time to talk about this in plain English with the public, um, to do so, you know, in Joe Rogan's man cave. And the fact is people listened because, of course, this was on everybody's mind and what they were supposed to do to protect, you know, they'd been terrified and they what to do to protect your family's health was a question that everybody wanted to know the answer to. So our ability to reach millions of people surprised those who thought they were just going to shove this narrative down our throats. And this gets me to the, the WHO, the World Health Organization, and its pandemic preparedness uh, plan modifications. What I believe is going on is the World Health Organization is now revising the structures that allowed the dissidents to upend the narrative, and they are looking for a rematch, I think. Um, what they want are the measures that would have allowed them to silence the podcasters, to mandate uh, various things internationally in a way that would prevent the emergence of a control group that would allow us to see harms clearly. Um, so. That's the reason that I think people, as much as they want to move on from thinking about COVID, maybe stop thinking about COVID. Yeah, that is a concern. Obviously, we've seen how much of the um, conversation on COVID-related subjects in the American context, despite our ironclad First Amendment protections, was, uh, was interrupted or attempted to be interrupted at times by government actors, including the CDC. And then, you know, we talk about this in other contexts. But outside the U.S., the protections for free speech are much less, uh, even in like our European peer countries. Now, the WHO, in some ways, I, I pointed this out before, was um, less militant about some COVID uh, 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 interventions than actually the, our own American government. Um, a lot of places in Europe, consistent with WHO recommendations, didn't do as much, um, you know, still encourage vaccination, still encourage masking and other things, but didn't strictly require it. Um, to the degree we went down that rabbit hole, but the speech protections are, are less robust. So um, I, I would share um, some of those concerns. Uh, what do you expect, uh, if anything, to come out of these uh, 
Fauci hearings, it seems already um, Emily Kopp was reporting that there's some new information that is out that is they're able to confront Fauci with about who knew what when, um, at clearance levels and the like. What, what do you expect to come yeah, out of Yeah, I would like him to be presented with questions about the reporting we saw um, in recent weeks that we've discussed on the show, um, showing that uh, people involved in the approval process for the funding grants for gain-of-function research knew specifically that it was going to be outsourced to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, but knew enough in the grant proposal to mask that fact, you know, admitting that once we actually get approved, we can do it in China. But if we tell them that's what we're going to do, it's going to trigger all these security concerns. Mm -hmm. We have that in writing now. We see that in the document. So I'd like Fauci to answer whether he thinks that was appropriate, whether he was aware of that kind of thing going on. I, I have seen a little bit of titter about why is this is a closed-door meeting. Fauci says that he is happy to answer any questions publicly or privately. And I do wonder how much um, kind of a post-hearing um, discourse we're going to have, or perhaps Fauci will be confronted with some of the revelations that came out in private and want to continue to discuss and uh, defend the choices that were made uh, publicly. I, I am also curious about whether or not this uh, topic in particular has as much traction as it did once. There was a time where it really felt like there were COVID candidates, candidates that were popular in part because they were critics and had long been longstanding critics of the way the pandemic was handled specifically um, with respect to uh, mandates, vaccine and mask mandates. Now it doesn't quite feel like that has as much energy in the space, despite RFK Jr. still doing relatively well in the polling and being the COVID candidate. How do you think it's going to play sure. out, especially between Biden and Donald Trump? Sure. Thankfully, the mandate people kind of lost the argument. Frankly, I don't know if they'll concede they lost the argument, but it, it is true that we— well, they lost the, the, the Supreme, Supreme Court, Court They lost the Supreme Court argument, but people are not—mandates um, are really still only in place on some and a decreasing number of college campuses. So it will be interesting, for the vaccines at least. Now, we did have—you know, a couple places have tried to bring back masks kind of cautiously. We talked about them in uh, medical settings last week. And then I did see this Twitter thread—maybe we can put it up on screen—from um, the city of St. Louis, uh, St. Louis, Missouri. A health official there did uh, mandate a few days ago another mask mandate just for—so it's very weird. It was, a, it was a citywide mask mandate, but the only people who had to comply with it were— city officials. So it wasn't just for medical settings or a particular setting. It was citywide, but it was only for city officials. And she was citing um, concerns about strains on the health system. But then that quickly got undone when, in fact, other people in the health system said, no, we're having a normal winter. We don't have a, a strain. And if we did, would this really be the, even the right? It would, you know, random. I mean, government employees are small too many of them of in the my head. view, but you know, a couple thousand of them in a large city, them walking around with masks, nobody else required to, doesn't really. Again, do it, I, you know how I feel? It just should be voluntary. Take whatever precautions you want, especially if you actually are sick. Consider taking more serious precautions. But the idea that just randomly <laughs> requiring a subset of the population that isn't more or less likely to be sick or more or less likely to be encountering sick people to wear masks um, didn't make a lot of sense. So, the, but the idea that that the, the fact that that quickly got undone shows uh, that there, I think, is very little appetite to have mandates anymore. So it'll be interesting how it you know, plays out between the two. Obviously, DeSantis was the candidate on the Republican side, most associated with opposition to mandates, much more so 
than uh, than than Trump, right. uh, particularly on the on the vaccine. I mean, Trump always said that he supports the vaccine. He took the vaccine. He thinks you should take the vaccine too, but that it should be your choice. And he said that very clearly that he didn't support mandating it mandating it for anyone. So I will be interested to see that. Obviously, Joe Biden very famously did move forward with a pretty uh, broad um, vaccine mandate for many millions of employees. Yeah, and in fact was championed for his response to the vaccine, uh, to the pandemic rather, and that was, I think, a, a significant part of why he ultimately won in 2020, that he was seen as more able to shepherd the country through this crisis than uh, Donald Trump was. Now, I do wonder if people feel the same way for a whole host of reasons, including that his uh, COVID policy and Donald Trump's COVID policy of not doing anything um, are pretty similar at this point in time. Yeah. All right, stick around. We'll have more Rising for you right after this. Next week, the House Oversight Committee members are set to undergo a classified briefing on unidentified anomalous phenomena, UAP, also known as UFOs. That's according to Axios. The exclusive briefing for committee members scheduled for January 12th and will take place in the Office of House Security, according to information from two sources familiar with the situation, and a notice reviewed by Axios. Dr. Peter Skafish, co-founder of the Soul Foundation, a new think tank that was established to advance Wider understanding of UAPs is here with us to discuss the upcoming briefing in UAP politics more generally. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate well, your coverage of the topic. It is our pleasure. Let us know what we can or maybe should expect out of this hearing. Well, I don't think you should expect fireworks out of this hearing, and I don't think you should expect much in the way of a disclosure from Congress about this hearing. Um, they're billing this as a hearing in which they're somehow conducting it at the top secret uh, SCI level, which means that the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community may be able to share with them some you know, broad details about the investigation he conducted about David Grush's um, whistleblower complaint. But there's an important thing to understand that I don't think is getting covered in, in um, the reporting on this. The Inspector General of the Intelligence Community has um, the, the has a special relationship to Congress, but it's with the Senate and House Intelligence Committees, and they have jurisdiction over intelligence. So the House Oversight Committee is there. They've had to do some work, I think, to establish a relationship here with the Inspector General, and he's going to have to respect the fact that. The other committees aren't going to really like this kind of uh, interaction. And additionally, I think most of the folks on the House Oversight Committee aren't really um, customarily cleared or the equivalent of cleared to get that kind of information. So you're saying that because of clearance levels, uh, you're only we're only likely to get a kind of top level superficial understanding of what evidence there is to support David Grush's claims, but not anything more specific, pointed images, videos, accounts from eyewitnesses and the like. Yeah, indeed. I think that's what's going on. But look, what's important about this, we have to kind of step back from um, the event itself and look at what this is in a process that's been underway since 2020. The legislative branch of the United States government um, it has been effectively cut out of the uh, UAP activities and programs in the intelligence community and the Department of Defense that um, Congress's own legislation alleges are there um, or asserts are there. 
And so this is one of another a number of steps that the um, the uh, that Congress has taken to um, basically try to reassert their rights um, uh, with respect to the executive branch. Um, it, this is an issue of enormous significance, and we're in, in the absurd situation of most of Congress doesn't believe it's real, and um, what activity there is in Congress isn't really fully supported by the executive branch. Right. I mean, the showdown between the legislative branch and the executive branch, you know, on a number of subjects. We talk about this with respect to foreign policy a lot. Our, our you know, our Constitution actually gives the the legislative powers to the legislative branch, the, the decision-making powers, and then the executive is supposed to just carry out those powers. But as our system has kind of evolved over the last 200 years, the executive has tremendous power actually to, to both propose and then implement policy, which is, you know, very frustrating for those of us who want the, the kind of accountability and the democratic, the, the more democratic aspects of the legislature, at least on paper, to take hold so that the American people can understand a, a lot of this, you know, information, which we're now hearing from, the, from these numbers of whistleblowers. And I'm just, I'm so frustrated every time we cover it because you'll, you'll have people, um, alleging thing, usually things, information that they don't directly possess, that, that they, but that they know exists, but that they can't share yeah. for various clearance reasons. And, you know, it's, I, I keep joking that I want us all to, everyone who watches this show, we should just all, like, storm the facility where the information is being kept secret, if that is indeed the case, because it's so frustrating that we, you can't get a straight answer out of anyone due to these clearance issues. It's like, well, who is restricting you? Who, who needs to sign off on the clearance? Let's haul that person before Congress and get answers from them. Yeah, exactly. Well, one thing I can say about that, I'll say I'll say two things. The first is that given that I've been working on this professionally for uh, two years now, I've had a lot of conversations with people from the intelligence community and other parts of federal government um, who have worked on this on the on the acknowledged programs on UAP since 2008. But but even some people that I suspect worked on on the unacknowledged programs that we um, we believe are there. And um, so I, I can I can say with high confidence that it's real. That I would even go so far as to say that that um, by my own standards, I know these programs are there. So so second, the question is is who's classifying it? How's it classified? Who has jurisdiction? Where is this going on in the executive branch? How big is it? And you know the fact that we have to ask those questions is why the legislative branch really needs to even go further than it has so far. And so, in that respect, what the House uh, Oversight Committee is doing is it's extremely laudable, even if it's not going to produce uh, kind of immediate results. Yeah, can, can you speak to the efforts by uh, particularly uh, Representative Tim Burchett, Representative Anna Polina Luna, a, a couple other members of, of the GOP, and there's some Democrats as well, have talked a lot about this in the media in recent um, months, which I also appreciate. But it sounds like we're what, what you're saying is that um, you know, they don't have the—it's it, not going to result in these massive disclosures that we need. Well, it may over time result in those disclosures, but you know, even if they were somehow given everything that is in that whistleblower complaint, I have a pretty good sense of the kind of information that's there. Um, 
they're not going to be able to disclose that to the public. I mean, I know um, uh, Timothy Burchett would is the kind of person that would maybe you know go right to the limit, but you know still that's going to be highly sensitive information according to everything I know about this, and it's and so you know it's it's much more about the process right now and where it leads. Um, and what I'll also say is that, you know, they they have rightly engaged in kind of some um, immediate democratic activity on this in the sense that this is this is kind of popular democracy at work where they don't have the jurisdiction, but they're doing it anyway. And they've listened to Dave Grush. They understand that's credible. They understand he's telling the truth. Um, and so they've just gone ahead and done it. But parallel with them, there's a lot of work taking place in the Senate. Uh, particularly on the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence and uh, the Senate Armed Services Committee. And, and it's really the legislation we've seen over the last years. And we now have eight pieces of legislation um, that all emanates from those committees. And those are committees that are very powerful. And the members of those committees and their staff um, are, are, you know, they are professionals and very select professionals at vetting intelligence and determining when they're being um, given enough of it or when they're being deceived. So we can have high confidence about that legislation. Doctor, you just alluded to the fact that you think that you have a pretty high confidence uh, as to what is in the uh, whistleblower report. And so I want to ask you, what do you think is in that whistleblower report? Why do you think you know that that's true? And why do you believe that that information, like how did you come to know that information and why aren't you or others who are also aware of that information able to make those specifics more public? Well, let me clarify. I, I don't know the content of the complaint in terms of, um, let's say, program names or budgetary details or um, military bases or um, uh, personnel that are, that are witting. Um, but we understand from Dave Grush that that kind of information is there. Um, and, you know, no one can do much with, uh, with that until the, the complaint itself is somehow made more available to the public. The, the information in the complaint is made more available to Congress and the public. Um, it's, it's been available to uh, the Senate uh, for a, a long time now. So that information is there, but it's, it's highly, highly classified. But, and, but what, you know, if yeah. someone was in the position to have that information, it'd be basically completely illegal. I want to go to disclose it. I want to go back to your initial question about what is there um, or, you know, how I might describe it. I really believe that that is kind of like the Pentagon Papers, maybe not in terms of volume, but uh, in terms of significance, and that it was, except that it was done through a legal process, which is which means that we're not going to get access to it. Um, to get access to that kind of information, Congress really needs to investigate, and there right. needs to be a congressional investigation akin to the one in the 1970s that was done of the intelligence uh, uh, community, the the Church Committee which established legislative oversight over the executive branch or over the intelligence community. Uh, with all due respect, I do feel as though a lot of the public, at least, are less interested in the details of where some top secret um, uh, operation was happening, at what facility, or the, those kind of state secret type things. They just want to know whether there's proof of extraterrestrial life. I don't care where it's housed. I don't care where the military facilities are. But for all, all of this conversation suddenly becomes that much more legitimate and meaningful if there is some concrete identification of actual proof of uh, alien life 
uh, tissue samples, um, uh, body, yeah. or technology that clearly is from right. outside it's, of this world. Spacecraft, right? right. That, that's what's described. If that stuff is is being stored somewhere, that means you know, ask people uh, obtained it, the government obtained it, and who are those? Agents, what is that agency? And we want to hear from you know that yeah. person and show us a photograph of it and and confirm what yeah. would be exactly. the most important um, development in uh, to, to some people. I would agree with that in like human history. I you know exactly. I, look, you know the the Schumer um, amendment, which was uh, recently kind of uh, gutted and revised so that it wasn't going to result in disclosures of information to the extent that it was hoped for. Um, did have a, a flaw, possibly, which was that it was kind of designed for the executive branch to reform the executive branch in order to produce that information. I think Congress needs to do this, and Congress could do this in various ways um, by basically forcing the hand of the agencies that probably have jurisdiction over this and just saying, you know, probably by law, we deserve to be broadly informed, not just the committees, and you have to find a way to declassify some things and bring it to us. And we mean business with a very simple law that says all of Congress needs to know. Hmm. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much, appreciate it. Well, it's January, which means we're entering award season. The Golden Globes aired to a whimper yesterday. There wasn't any of the winners who made the news. Oppenheimer and Barbie won big, by the way. It was host Joe Coy's opening monologue. Some panned the comedian's jokes. It's just not very funny. Take a look. Uh, the big difference between the Golden Globes and the NFL, on the Golden Globes, we have fewer camera shots of Taylor Swift. I swear. There's just more to go to here. Sorry about that. Coy wasn't the only controversial comedian that night. Jim Gaffigan made a joke poking fun at the seemingly pedophilic predilections of Hollywood's elite. Let's watch. The Golden Globes. I mean, I, I can't even believe I'm in the entertainment industry. I can't. I, you know, it's so unlikely. I'm from a small town in Indiana. I'm not a pedophile, you know, I just. So Jim Gaffigan is hilarious. He's very funny. It's the deadpan delivery. That joke was great. It landed. Um, the, yeah, the host, so I, I didn't watch a single second of the Golden Globes, neither did you. No. I, I don't think. So I'm just kind of catching up what the conversation was like on social media. Joe Coy's performance seems like it was very poorly received. And when we say, like, the jokes weren't funny, I, I don't, people might be thinking that means, oh, it was too, one, like, ideological in one way or something. It seems like most people just thought it was just straight up not funny. Not, like, not funny because it offended the romp. It was just, like, not well delivered, and including that clip we saw there. I'm glad you're saying it wasn't funny. If I say a joke isn't funny, it's because I'm a Wokeness. woman. No, it's because I'm Wokeness. a woman and I don't understand um, what comedy is. Well, w women aren't funny. Yeah. As it's what I'm told frequently right. whenever we have a conversation right. about a comedian in the comment section. But that aside, I would agree with you. Uh, what he kept saying, or I think, I don't know if he said this during or during the show or if it was just uh, summarized online afterwards. I think he said it during the show. Um, I know what you're going to say. But that he didn't write many of the jokes mm -hmm. and that he wasn't responsible for the jokes that bombed, that those were the ones that he did not write and that he was hired pretty late in the game to do this because nobody else wanted the job. So that might be true, but I don't think that puts you in a sympathetic position for a couple of reasons. 
one, you're completely throwing the other jo joke writers under the bus who are helping you to prepare for a huge gig for which you're being paid a lot of money. And two, it's your responsibility as a comedian to make jokes funny. I mean, I think part of the issue with the Taylor Swift joke, look, Taylor Swift is gonna roll her eyes at a joke at her expense, that's to be expected. But if you deliver even a joke like that in a certain way, you get the audience to side with you as opposed to a Taylor Swift. He was running away from the joke as yes, he was delivering. 100%. You could tell he didn't have faith in the joke. So then they should have just cut it during rehearsal or whatever. He should have vetoed it. If yeah. you're going to do that joke, just do it. Commit. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, I think it was. It wasn't like the. Again, it wasn't an offensive joke. Maybe she doesn't. No, like it was a good joke. All, but it was fine. I mean, everyone knows she's dating an NFL player. And right now, if you watch a what a Kansas City Chief game. The, the the commentators are obsessed with Taylor Swift, and if she attends the game, it's all camera shots of her. Like, it's a very relatable, well-constructed, good mm -hmm. joke. It's not, like, the joke of the century, but it should have been a light, easy, easy gotcha. But he seemed to care more about whether or not he offended Taylor Swift than whether or not he could deliver a joke in a way that was funny. It was not—look, it was not Chris Rock— going in on Will Smith's wife's alopecia. Right. It was not a joke that was going to get him slept. Taylor Swift was not going to stomp on the stage with her gown Kanye style and say, I'm going to let you finish, and then backhand him <laughs> the way that Will Smith did at the Oscars. So why he was so timid about it and why he would be so skittish having just accepted that role, I think, is, is a real problem. Yeah. It, uh, the joke about uh, Epstein reminded me of, I wish maybe maybe our, our, so we have a wonderful writing team that we would never throw under the bus. <laughs> They're super talented. They're working diligently right now. And as I continue to stonewall, maybe they can think about whether we have the rights to play the clip I'm about to describe. <laughs> and if so, you guys can cue it up and do it. The Ricky Gervais speech at the Golden Globes when he hosted in, I believe, 2020, he he gave, he had a hilarious, actually hilarious um, comments about um, Epstein, where uh, where the audience, like he made a joke about Epstein, it didn't go over super well, and he said, oh, I know he's your friend, but I don't care. <laughs> it was so good. And he told him to like, just accept your award and then get out of here. And it was really, it was really good delivery. It was the kind of like, he, he, he was manifesting actual contempt yeah. for the, the people of Hollywood. Uh, maybe we can play some of it if they, uh, if they do in fact have it. In this room are some of the most important TV and film executives in the world, people from every background, but they all have one thing in common. They're all terrified of Ronan Farrow. <laughs> He's coming for you. He's coming for you. Look, talking of all you perverts, it was a big year... It was a big year for paedophile movies. Um, surviving R. Kelly, Leaving Neverland, Two Popes... <laughs> Shut up. Shut up. I don't care. I don't care. No one cares about movies anymore. No one goes to the cinema. No one really watches network TV. Everyone's watching Netflix. This show should just be me coming out going, well done, Netflix. You win. Everything. Good night. But no. No. We've got to drag it out for three hours. You could binge watch the entire first season of Afterlife instead of watching this show. That, that's a show about a man who wants to kill himself because his wife dies of cancer. And it's still more fun than this. Okay? <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, season two is on the way. So in the end, he obviously didn't kill himself. Just like Jeffrey Epstein. Shut up. I know he's your friend, but I don't care. <laughs> you had to make your own way here in your own plane, didn't you? So...
<laughs> See, that is a good monologue, like right? That was, it was funny. That was very good. Also, Afterlife is a pretty good show. Yeah, so <laughs> it, it can be done. Um, I don't know. I think people, these award shows have diminishing importance if they ever, I think they have like worse and worse viewership numbers every year. I don't know. Yeah, I think people just watch clips online, online. is the issue. <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't watch the Golden Globes. Um, I did watch um, the lead a a female actor from um, oh, the uh, the big um uh, Native American, Osage oh, County, uh, Flowers, movie, of, the Flowers Moon. of the Killer Moon. Um, I watched her speech. I watched a couple of other speeches. Um, Killers of the Flower Moon. And, and that's all I really need. I mean, these things are so long. You care about fighting what the results are. I mean, I think that the words are necessary and good because I think that these people deserve recognition. Um, but I don't, like, who mm -hmm. has time at this stage on a Sunday night to spend three hours? I mean, I was riding a radar, Robbie. Yeah. <laughs> that took you at least three hours. I was riding was a, a three Yeah, I was like, wow, this is going on here. I, uh, you know, I had time to binge the entire uh, Afterlife show while sitting at this, uh, at this uh, uh, computer. Yeah. So, and, and also, like, if I'm going to watch an award show, I'm probably just going to watch the Oscars, like the Golden, I don't know if sure. that's just my, the Golden Globes is the other one yeah. of slightly less importance, I think. Yeah. So. Yeah. Did you, any upsets for you? Was something no, you were pulling for that didn't make it or vice so versa? So I'm rooting for Oppenheimer. Um, I, I love Killian Murphy. I love Christopher Nolan. Oppenheimer was very good. I, I don't think it was my favorite movie ever. I don't even think it was Christopher Nolan's best movie. But he should be recognized, and uh, and I'm a big fan in general. And, and and him and Killian Murphy deserve all the awards they're going mm -hmm. to get. So I was very happy to see them win. I was happy to see you know Barbie. Get, uh, notch a couple victories. Succession. Um, I look. I love Succession. I think it might be slightly overpraised at this point. It won like impossible. It cleaned up. Look, I like it. I'm not saying it's it's great. I don't know if no. it's the greatest thing of all time. Succession. It got as many awards as like Mad Men and The Sopranos. I don't. I don't. It put deserves it, in the same, it. No, I don't put Succession it in the same category. Succession is better than Mad Men. A hundred percent. No, it's not. Scad's better. Agree. There's I not a single agree. episode of Mad Men that holds a candle to like that's the not most true. middling episode oh, that's so wrong. of Succession. I still feel very strongly about this, and I liked Mad Men perfectly fine. Okay. But Succession was a masterpiece. I mean, I really liked it, but anyway, it was. So we'll see if this. Uh, how it goes down at the Oscars, which are what later this month or next month? Oh, or who can tell? We'll we'll be the, here to tell you about the it. The producers will tell us next morning when we haven't watched it. Let's <laughs> <laughs> say gather gather your thoughts. Wait, real quick, who are the people that were like supposedly fighting at the at the the Golden Globes? Or there was a there was a oh, tense Timothy conversation. Was it about it was about little Timmy C? So Timothy Chalamet and um, the Jenner, uh, the youngest Jenner. Kylie Jenner, are dating, obviously. There was a, there were a lot of camera shots of them very intimately talking to each mm -hmm. other in a way that was, depending on how you feel about the couple, very cute or nauseating. You decide whatever. But apparently, Selena Gomez went over and wanted to take a picture with Timothy Chalamet. We know this from lip reading her after she was denied that opportunity, and she went back to talk about it with I think Taylor Swift and a bunch of her mm -hmm. friends who were scandalized that she was shut down in this way. So important news like kindergarten all over again. <laughs> that does it for us for today tomorrow on rising more news for you from us <laughs> imagine that be sure to like share and subscribe so you never miss any content and for those who prefer to listen while you're on the go we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts bye bye take care